So we're going to kind of close out this mini-series that we were doing uh, in response to our vision and values series. Uh, three weeks ago, we started into this series. If we're going to be serious about the visions and values that we talk about around here that are written on paper, if they're really going to affect who or, or they're really important to us, at some level they should affect how we act and how we interact and engage with those around us and in this world, some of which, in some ways, we have treated as if it's the worst thing since... Ebola, you know, I mean, we've just have gone off the deep end with some of this stuff as if it's really the end of the world. Well, well, the, the reality is at some level, if the gospel, if truth, if God's uh, love, if those things are really valuable to us, then, then what we've recognized is that there is obviously, maybe, maybe not as obvious as we'd like to think sometimes, but there should be a different response. It shouldn't control us. We shouldn't be overwhelmed by it. We shouldn't be so lost in it because there's always hope for sin. There's always room for reconciliation. There's always room for redemption. There's always forgiveness available in the gospel. The truth tells us that, that there's a standard. The truth tells us that, tells us that, that, that God has a, a set of things, a, a design for us that he intends us to live within. And if we get outside of that, if we do something in, in opposition to that, then it, that's sin. It's not just a mistake. It's sin. Let's call it what it is. But there's hope in light of that. And we, we, we face crisis. The crisis is not the end of us because the gospel tells us the, the word of God, the work of God, uh, and, and the... Um, and the truth of God all demonstrates to us that there's a brighter day coming, that there's something to look forward to. And, and as we looked at things like crisis, we, we don't have to be, we don't have to be undone by them. They don't have to control us or rule over us or, or, um, frighten us. We don't have to live in fear because of what He's done. If we really value these things, they should really engage us. We really should re, re, uh, change the way that we react and w- engage with the things that happen around us. And, and so as we were walking through this, I told you guys several weeks in a row now that, that we would be talking about the end of the world today, uh, the left behind thing. But as I prepared this sermon this week and as I got to about Wednesday, I realized that that was not what I was going to be preaching on. It's difficult whenever I do study and plan and prepare for me to let go of these things, I've become kind of connected with them. And it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's as close to art as I get. So it becomes very personal to me. And uh, so it was difficult for me to let that go. But God impressed upon my heart. I think that there's something a little more timely, a little more important, a little more, um, maybe, it may, 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 maybe not more important. I mean, the end of the world is pretty important. But, but we're going to be focusing on that kind of during the next series as we think about the king coming during Advent. There's something that needs to be talked about that I was purposefully avoiding, that I was purposefully not talking about because I didn't really know where to stand. And it impressed upon my heart this week that that wasn't the right way to respond. Because if I value the gospel, if I value the truth, if I value his love, if I value the community of God's people, then it should change the way I react, the way I perceive and engage the world. So I had to sit there and recognize I'm just as jacked up as anybody else in the world, and that's never fun to do. You know how that goes. I had to repent, and I had to follow the Lord. And this is what he impressed upon my heart. On August 9th, Michael Brown was shot and killed by an officer named Darren Wilson. And what ensued has thrown our city, not our city so much, but our nation into kind of a pot that's just boiling. Now, it's worse near the epicenter, obviously, 
Ferguson for a period of time was a scary place to even think about being. But still, it reaches all across our nation. It's unfortunate, I think it's really unfortunate, that probably more than we realize, cops shoot citizens, police officers shoot citizens probably more often than we realize on a daily, maybe even weekly, weekly, maybe daily basis. I tried to find the statistics. Nobody seems to be tracking that. Nobody is out there making sure or counting the number of police shootings, at least that I could find. If you can find it, that's great. I'd love to, I'd love to hear it. Um, just for my own understanding. But, but I think it probably happens more than we like to admit. But this particular incident caused a lot of fallout. And it brought to the surface something that had been boiling and had really been covered over and Political correctness has really made us feel a little better about it. But the reality is that the racial tension that still resides in our nation came bursting forth. So as I watched, I saw things that reminded me of being in high school, in junior high in Louisiana. I had one of my best friends was, was a black guy. His name was Bruce. We hung out nearly every day until he moved away. He moved first, and then we moved later. <clears throat> But there was this unwritten rule that we understood that if a fight broke out and it was between a black guy and a white guy, that our loyalties were to lie primarily with our race and not our friendship. Now, I don't like that rule, but that's what I was growing up in. That's kind of the unwritten idea that was was written for us. And so we were lucky. I never got in a fight with him. I never got punched by him, and he never punched me. But fights broke out often. And when a black guy was fighting a white guy, the line was clear. It wasn't just people standing around encouraging or cheering on the fight and cheering on their side. It was people fighting one another, and the fight would spread. And you could stand back and watch it happen. I remember seeing it happen across the, across the courtyard a number of times. That people would just, it was almost like two teams, two baseball teams coming out of their inning, out, out of their, out of their, um, what are those called? Dugouts, thank you. Coming out of their dugouts at one another, it was, it was a crazy thing to watch. And I sat and I watched that happen on the sidelines, thinking I really didn't have a part to play. So I watched as, as pastors, black pastors, church leaders that I appreciate, that I love, that, that, that I listen to regularly, make comments that I just didn't completely understand. And I doubted that they were really making them in the best interest of anyone. Comments that, that demonstrate their fear and their frustration and their, and their anger and, and some even their fear of where we are as a nation. And I watched as my white friends would immediately jump on a bandwagon to support a white officer. And they would, and they, and they would kind of throw these stones, well, wait, we've got to wait for the evidence. And my black friends were saying, well, hey, this is something we deal with every day. And then they were talking at one another, but there was no talking. It didn't seem like as if they were talking with one another. And I just wanted to kind of let the whole thing go. Because it was really kind of easier. Because I really didn't know my place in it. Well, this week, as I've studied... And I've looked back at all that we've been watching. All that we've been watching as a, as a city was torn into, as two families 
lives were radically changed forever as riots began, as property was destroyed, as we sat back and watched that, as we, as we then turned to wait. Wait now on a decision, whether he's guilty or not. As if that's going to make it better for us. We've had these people decide for us whether it was right or wrong. The, the reality is a, a man has lost his life and another man's life has been changed forever because of this incident. And there's so much tension in that city. Just, just last week I was talking to two, two pastors, to a couple of people that I've met recently and, and have been able to talk openly and honestly with. And they told me the tension in their city. The tension that they feel, the, the, the pressure and the, the constant concern of what might happen in the next couple of days. I mean, it's so real. It's so real that Governor Nixon has already, not waited for, not waited to see what was going to happen, decided already last week he declared a state of emergency because he's convinced of what could happen. Police have already been meeting with protest leaders and they've defined 11 ways in which, 11 rules of engagement as they protest, trying to maintain order and control. And the people that live there are just uncertain. They just don't know what to do. And we wait. What the Lord did in me this week is convinced me that there is a different way that we should be reacting in situations like this. If we are a people of the gospel, we are not a people who are allowed to sit on sidelines. We are not a people who are allowed to to do nothing, to wash our hands and walk away. It's too far away. It doesn't affect us. It is affecting us. It's affecting our nation. If we value the things that we value, there must be a different way. And the Lord impressed that upon my heart this week, that I believe there's a different way, a better way, a gospel way for us to engage and react. If we are these people, I I, I believe, confidently believe, that this is what we should do. And he led me to Luke chapter 10. It's a common story. You've heard it. It's, it's so common that there's a, you know, we've coined the phrase like a good Samaritan for people who do good deeds. But he led me to this place and he led me to this passage and, and, and we're just going to work our way through it. And I believe that, that you'll see and he'll show you what he showed me and he'll lead us to react better, to react with a more gospel intent, a more gospel centered view. So we're going to be, begin reading in verse 25, and we'll just read through to the end of the end of it. We'll stop along the way and, and talk about some things. He says, or it says in, in Luke, starting in verse 25, Luke chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, this lawyer, he's an expert in the law. He knows the law. He knows the Mosaic law. This isn't a lawyer like a defense lawyer or a, a prosecuting attorney. This is a lawyer who studies the Mosaic law. You know, the, the, the law that God gave to the Israelites and said, if you'll follow those things, you'll be my people. I'll be your God. And, and you maintain this, this part of your covenant is to live in obedience to these things. He knew that. He studied it. He knew it inside and out. He knew what the, he knew the underlying ideas. I mean, he was an expert, right? He was an expert in his field. People went to him asking him questions, looking for insight. He was the expert. So this lawyer stands up in the middle of this crowd, and, and I don't know how many people are there. I just know that there's a crowd. He stands up and he puts Jesus to the test, saying, 
teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Maybe one of the most important questions we could ever ask, maybe one of the most important things that we could ever be confronted with is this question. What, is it, what does it take for us? What, what does it take for you and I, uh, uh, just regular everyday people, what does it take for us to have eternal life? But he's not saying, what does it take for me to receive it? He's asking, what does it take? What do I have to do? What do I have to accomplish? What works do I have to perform in order to inherit eternal life? Already you can begin to hear his perspective. He feels like he can do it on his own. Jesus said to him, verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now here's what's interesting. Jesus never just gives you a straightforward answer. He does it over and over. I mean, it happens time and time again. People come and they ask him questions and testing, and, and he's too good. He knows too much. He knows what people are trying to do. He knows they're trying to trip him up. He knows that they're putting him to the test. And so this lawyer gets lawyered. And he says, oh, well, you tell me. You tell me what the law says. And the guy answers, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. Or all your mind and all your strength as yourself. And your neighbor as yourself, sorry. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now here's what, hap- what, what, what I believe should have happened in that moment. That man should have just been distraught. Who of us could even fathom and think that we could accomplish this completely? Who of us thinks that in some way we have the ability in ourselves to love God with our complete being? If we're honest with ourselves just for a second, we recognize that we oftentimes love other things more. If we're honest with ourselves just for a second, we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. This guy, as an expert in the law, should have immediately understood, I can't do that. The whole sacrificial system had been set up for them because they couldn't do it. They were constantly having to come back and and provide sacrifice for their ongoing sin because they couldn't measure up. But this guy says, well, this is what the law tells me. If I will do these things, then I will have earned eternal life. And what should have happened in that moment is he should have been overridden with anguish, anguish. Because there doesn't, there doesn't appear to be any hope offered in that. You've said right. What are you going to have to do? You are going to have to do these things. And we all know it can't be done. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And this lawyer responds, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor. You see, instead of being distraught, instead of feeling the weight of these commands, because, I mean, here, let me just give you a bigger view of what's happening here. He, he has taken two commands that Jesus has taught and the Jews all thought that, that, um, summarized the whole of the law. The whole of the law is summarized in these two commands. For example, like the Ten Commandments, the first four are about how we engage with God, loving God. The, the, the last six of the Ten Commandments are about how we engage, about how we love others. The whole of the law, all of them are summarized in these two commandments. What Jesus is saying to this guy is you must keep 
perfectly, without, without fail, without any flaw, you must keep the whole law. And instead of being frustrated, instead of being distraught, instead of feeling fear and the weight of this command, he, he didn't do that. He stood up and he says, and, and, and Luke, Luke recognizes this, to justify himself, to prove himself worthy, to prove himself right, to save face in front of all these people, to put himself in a place where no one looks down on him and thinks that he's lost. He challenges Jesus with another test. Oh, yeah? Well, who's my neighbor? And so here's, here's why I share all of that with you. Because we can't come to what I'm, we're about to read in, this, in, in the Good Samaritan and approach it in such a way that we see it as anything other than Jesus' expression of what it looks like to love a neighbor perfectly in order to find yourself justified. See, as we read this, in the context, we, we have to see, we have to see in the context that Jesus is providing this answer as, as a further demonstration that this guy can't measure up. To put on this guy a weight that would put him on his knees and, and, and beg for mercy. But what I believe happens here gives us a summary, just like we've seen a summary of the law, we see a summary not only of what Jesus demands of people if they're going to try to earn their way to heaven but also we can see an allegory a representation a summary of what it looks like to live in light of our salvation and that's most often actually how people treat it but that's taking it out of context and i want to be i want to be straight with you i want to be fair with you i want you to understand the distinction so that's what we're going to do as we continue reading So he says, Jesus replies to this man's question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So here's our first character in this story, the traveler. Assuming that he's a Jewish man leaving Jerusalem, heading to Jericho, going down this winding road that's dangerous, people know, they understand, there's no no surprise when Jesus talks about this happening. It's a story. It's not a real event. It's a story. But nobody's surprised by this story. There's nothing surprising. Everybody knows this is a dangerous road. It's a place that was known for robbers to hide out and jump people and rob them and take their stuff. It's a story that they seemingly would just completely understand. Here's this Jewish man headed to Jericho. He gets robbed, stripped, beaten, and left for dead in the ditch on the side of the road. Completely, completely plausible story. Now by chance, Jesus goes on, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Our second character, the priest, who saw the man, went to the other side of the road, passed the man. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side of the road. So here's what's happened. This man leaves Jerusalem, goes, gets beaten, robbed, everything taken from him, stripped naked, laying dead, or, or half dead, naked in a ditch. The religious man, the religious leader, the pastor, you might say, leaves Jerusalem, walking the same way, sees the guy, sees the guy laying in the ditch. He looks at him. 
And he doesn't just kind of skirt him. The Greek, the, the word anti is used, which demonstrates that he was pressing himself as far away. He was moving as far away as absolutely possible. So if you could imagine that that's one side of the road and here's the priest on the other side of the road doing everything he could to stay distant. He sees him. He, he sees the trouble. He sees the need. He sees the desperation. And yet he does nothing about it but do, but, 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 but walk on by. And the Levite. The Levite, the, another religious leader of sorts. He was the, the Levite was the ones that, 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 that were responsible for the liturgies and making sure that the temple was ready. So, so you might say the deacons. The deacons, the ones making sure that ministry was happening and that, and that things were functioning. This deacon, he does the exact same thing. The very people that you would expect to have the compassion and the knowledge and the wisdom and the insight to do something about this man's trouble. And they push themselves aside. They push themselves away and they look and they see and they keep on walking. Here's the difficult thing about this whole thing. It's easy to recognize myself. It's easy to put myself in the place of the traveler having been beaten and broken because I recognize the struggles of my life. I recognize, I recognize that life sometimes just tears us down and the sins that, that can seemingly overwhelm. But what's not easy is recognizing that sometimes I'm a Levite and a priest. In fact, my very action in the way that I was engaging friends and keeping quiet and not challenging my white friends to jump on a white bandwagon, and not speaking graciously to understand the frustrations and the fears of my black friends. Just sitting and letting it happen and watching, I was a priest and a Levite. But we don't need situations like Ferguson to happen to be priests and Levites, do we? There's always something happening around us where people are hurting. Where people are in need. Where life has beaten them up. We see it. And we just keep right on going. In fact, sometimes, just like the priest and Levite, doing everything we can to avoid it. Brothers and sisters, I think there's something different. I think there's a better way. I think there's something he wants for us to do differently. And in fact, we see it happen right here in one little word, but. But. You see, it's about to change. There's about to be a contrast. Something different is about to happen. But. A Samaritan. And right there. Right there, in that moment, I think you could have heard the wind sucked out of the room. I think you could have seen jaws hit the floor. I I think the reality of this moment, we don't get it because we don't fully understand what had happened. The the rivalry that was going on between the Jews and the Samaritans made what has happened between white people and black people in the history of our country look like child's play. 
You see, they weren't covering it up. There was no political correctness. They didn't have any concern for the other side. There was no, no thought of feelings. Well, I'm just going to whisper and make my things, my, you, know, you know, keep my stuff over here. And, and they're going to keep their stuff over here. We'll just be separate and it'll be okay. No, they were openly sh- de- demonstrating animosity towards one another. They openly opposed one another. They wouldn't have anything to do with one another. And they didn't care if the other, uh, if the other person knew it. They didn't have any sense of concern for them. The, the Jews literally thought the Samaritans were less. They literally thought they were not, they, they, they were not able to be clean. They literally thought that they were worthless. But, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So Jesus comes to the end of the story, and he turns again to the lawyer, and he says, Which of these three do you think provided or proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. And in that moment, he put a weight on that man. He said, you go and you do the same thing to prove yourself justified. What's he telling the man to do? What's he expecting him to do? And by extension... As a people who have been radically transformed by the gospel, as a people who value the things of God, as a people who want to live like He would have us live, what does He want us to do? What are we supposed to do that's different? What does it look like, practically look like, to be different? I think the principles are there in the story of the Samaritan. You see, immediately when we hear that it's a Samaritan, we have to recognize that there is no racial, social, or economic divide that the gospel does not cross and does not send us across. It's not like the gospel's over there waiting for us to show up. The gospel is actively working in us, actively changing us, actively transforming us, actively building in us a compulsion to go to those who are different than us. Jesus demonstrated it over and over again. Maybe one of the most popular examples that I could point to is, is Jesus sitting at a well in Samaria. It, it was, it would, the Jews wouldn't even go to Samaria. If, if they were traveling to the northern kingdom, instead of going through Samaria, which was the shorter route, they'd actually travel around. It was a much more difficult path, a much more difficult way for them to get there, but they would actually travel around because they wanted nothing to do with Samaritans. Jesus, being Jesus... He goes through Samaria and he shows up and he sees this woman at the well who is an outcast in her own community. At least that's what we assume. She's at the well in the middle of the day. See, he sits down and begins to talk to her. So first he starts speaking to a woman, which is not done in their day. That woman happens to be a Samaritan. He's a Jew. That's not done in their day. Even her own people don't want her. And yet he approaches her. And offers her salvation. What a beautiful presentation of what he's calling this man to do. 
Paul pointed out in Galatians, as, as he's writing to the, to the church in Galatia who is struggling under the law, that, that in Christ we are no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, free, male nor female. There In Christ we are one. There is no one more valuable than another. There is no one more worthy than another. There is no position to be elevated than the other. In Christ we are equal. There is no looking at the color of the skin or the shape of the eyes. There is no looking at a checkbook or or a lack of an account. There is no looking at a man or a woman and thinking that one deserves more from God than the other. In Christ, the, the level, the, the playing field has been leveled. We are equal. One and the same. And as Jesus sent us into the world, He didn't just send us to particular people groups. He told us to go and be witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost, the ends of the earth. It starts here. It starts here, but it doesn't end here. He sent us to all tribes and tongues and nations. You see, the presentation of this, the reality is, is that the gospel doesn't favor people. Doesn't, doesn't have a class that's more worthy of it. And it sends us as ambassadors to people who are different. I just recently heard a talk as, as, as I've been working through this. I just recently heard a talk by a guy named Tabidi and, uh, Tabidi and Abwale. I, I totally messed up his last name. It's a Swahili name. And anyway, apologize for that. But Tabidi made this, gave this talk back in 2008 at, uh, the, together for the gospel conference. And he demonstrated biblically that there is a myth, a fiction to our racial divisions. That we are all children extended from Adam. That basically we all have one daddy. We all come from him. And by extension, genetically, by extension, biologically, we may have ethnic, ethnic differences. There may be differences in the way we look. There may be differences in the way we speak. There may be differences in the way we perceive things. But at the very base of who we are, we are people. And that we have derived and, and developed these divisions based on our fallen perspectives of superiority over others. Powerful talk. If you don't, if, if you want to listen to it, I'll get you the link. You make sure you talk to me after. Powerful, powerful talk. Because as we build these lines, we actually don't just work against one another. We work against the power of the Spirit who has called us a people. The children's song. You've heard it. Jesus loves the little children of the world. All the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in His sight. And probably one of the most politically incorrect songs we could teach our children to sing, but I really believe, brothers and sisters, I believe this from the depths of my heart, we've got to abandon political correctness for open, honest conversation about the God who doesn't just save white folks or black folks or rich folks or poor folks, but He saves people. And you and I are some of those people. And the gospel sends us to those people. 
The second thing I think we see is that the gospel, the gospel compels us to love others with the same intimate, selfless, and generous love with which we have been loved. I mean, you see it in the, in the, in the action and, and the process by which the Samaritan walked through. What, the story of the Samaritan, we see it unfold in front of us. He loved intimately. The priest and the Levite, they didn't love them. In fact, they were doing everything they couldn't. They, they could not to love. They were, they were staying as far away as possible. But this guy, he doesn't just, he doesn't just walk by. He doesn't just look down and, and throw some money at this guy. He didn't just throw some bandages over there. I hope he's able to get those on. He actually stops. He steps into the midst of this guy's mess. He saw the need. He saw what was going on. And he had compassion. And he stopped what he was doing. He stopped his own, own agenda. And he got into the middle of this dude's mess in order that he could make a difference. Man, that's a big deal. Do you know, do you know what it looks like to get in the middle of somebody's mess with them? It might rub off. It, it, it ain't going to end you. It's not going to destroy you. You see, what Christ has done has saved you. We don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to live in fear of that. We can get in and intimately love. Let me just, I just want to share with you just quickly a couple of things, a couple of ways that that's changed in me and a couple of things that have happened just recently that that, that, that has empowered, that idea has empowered. So as this has happened, I have I have reached out. Because instead of sitting and wondering why in the world people would react the way they're reacting, I've tried to step into their shoes. And so I called some friends, sat on the phone the other day with a, a guy that used to go here. His name was Xavier Bright. You guys, most of you will remember him. He's a black guy. He and his wife have moved back to Texas. And I called him and I just, I just, I said, hey, man, I'm ignorant. I'm stupid when it comes to this. Can you help me see? Can we get past the, the junk that comes with me being white and you being black? And let's just have some honest conversation I want to understand. For about an hour and a half, we talked about it. And he helped me see something. I just didn't have a clue. I didn't understand. I couldn't understand because I didn't ever walk in his shoes. But I have to get in his mess. I have to step in with him. Another way, Scott um, Sturm, he's sitting right here. He told us about this skepticon that happens every year right here in Springfield. It's the biggest, one of the biggest gathering of atheists in, uh, in our nation happens right here in Springfield, Missouri. And when he first told me about it, I was like, man, I don't really look forward to that. I'm going to go because, I mean, I'm the preacher. I'm supposed to go. Right? I mean, what would he think if I didn't go? So I go, being all legalistic in my head and making sure that I look good in front of people. It's the truth. I didn't want to confess that, but it's the truth. And I show up, and you know what happened? I saw this begin to be put into play. Because I had no understanding, I had no idea what these people are dealing with. And they radically oppose our worldview. Now, they're not angry about it, well, at least not the ones we spoke to. I'm sure there are some that are angry. But most just wanted to sit and have a conversation. And you know what we got to do yesterday? We got to sit and have a conversation to the glory of God and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to people who maybe nobody else is willing to sit down and have a conversation with. 
So I got to exchange information with one of the guys that, that we spoke with, and hopefully we're able to set up the time. We can sit down and just continue the conversation. He used to be a believer, but now he's just too smart for that. Figured out that he doesn't need God. But I'm confident that if I, if, if I love him enough, if I love him intimately enough to get in his mess, that I can show him the power and presence of, of a God who loves him. You see, it doesn't rest on me. I got, I got the gospel that is the power of life, of, of power of God unto life. I think we've got to do that. I think we've got to do that. I think that's what Jesus would call us to. He loved him in, in, intimately. He loved selflessly. You see, it's easy to just breeze by this in the story. He comes to this place where Jesus talks about the Samaritan. It's easy to just breathe, breeze by this. He says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, Wait a minute. You mean the Samaritan had a destination in mind? You mean the Samaritan was not just trolling that road looking for somebody to help? You you mean the Samaritan actually had his own agenda, his own priorities, his own desires, his own place to be and people counting on him? He had all of that set up. He journeyed. He's journeyed. He's going somewhere. Yeah. And he stopped. And he let himself be distracted. And he gave himself up. He set his own agendas, his own priorities, set it all aside. And he stopped. And he took action. But it wasn't just that. I mean, you just think about this. That dude laying there in the ditch could be a trap. Where are the people that robbed him? I mean, really, I think I, I think if if... Jesus hadn't said, but a Samaritan, you know, that, that right there just threw everybody off kilter. They didn't know what to do, I think. But if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't said, but a Samaritan, this next piece where the person actually approached this guy would have been the moment where the, where, where this music in the movie swells, you know, like that tense moment that you just know somebody's going to jump out. He set himself aside. He wasn't worried about the danger. Well, maybe he was worried. I don't, I don't know what his emotions were in that moment, but, but, he, but he set it aside. And even though there was a possible danger for him, he stepped in. He faced the risk. He set his desires, his agenda, his stuff. He put it on hold. And he didn't just do it for a little while. I mean, you, you, you know that the story goes on that says he took the guy to an inn and he stayed with him overnight and, and, didn't leave till the next morning. I mean, he put his life on hold for this fellow. He loved him selflessly. And he loved generously. Right there on the side of the road, here's this guy. He's got nothing. Remember, he's been robbed. No money. He's, everything's been taken. He, he doesn't have any wine. He doesn't have any oil. He doesn't even have clothes. Where's, where, where's all this stuff coming from that this guy has to, to, to work on him with? Where, where's it coming from? It's his own. It's his own. So whose clothes is he tearing up to, to get bandages to, to put on the, the guy's wounds? Whose, whose wine is he pouring over his wounds? Whose oil is he anointing him with? It's his own. And here's the, here's the power of this. I mean, we don't really see it in the, in the English language so much, but here's the power of this. In, in the Greek language, when you read through this, the wording and the way it's worded, the way Jesus phrased it, demonstrates that he's not just taking his wine and dabbing it on a piece of cloth and making sure that he's real careful with it. I've got to save this for later because so, I want to drink it. 
He, he's not, no, the, the wording he uses, the way he phrases it is he is pouring it over lavishly. He is not wasting anything on himself or saving anything for himself, but he is giving everything he has for this guy. He's giving it all. And he goes so far as to, 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 to take him to this inn and spend his time with him. And spend the night with him. And the next morning he wakes up and he gives the guy, the, the innkeeper, two denarii. And there have been estimates about what that, what that would give this, this man, this, this, this traveler, what it would, what, how many nights it would keep him there. Some, some say days, some say weeks, some say months. I've, I've seen a whole bunch of different ideas there. But out of his own pocket, the Samaritan makes certain that this guy has what he needs. And then he goes one step further. See, that's not enough. That's not enough. He doesn't, in his mind, it's not enough. He says, whatever charges he accrues, I'll pay. He opens himself to dishonesty and abuse from the innkeeper. He opens himself up for whatever is necessary to make sure that this guy gets the care that he needs. He loves this man generously. And the gospel compels us, I believe, brothers and sisters, the gospel compels us to do this same thing. And see, I told you, this is kind of an allegorical interpretation of it, and we have to be careful. We have to be careful. Uh, but, but we can't look at this passage as people who believe, as people who have been justified, as people who have been saved, and say it means nothing for us. See, I think, I think as we approach this, we need to recognize that the Good Samaritan sets the standard not for us to live up to, but for us to live out of. You see, here's the, here's the, here's the temptation, I think. The temptation for us, I think, is to immediately jump into the shoes of the Samaritan and say, I can do that. I can be that person. I can be approved. I can be justified. I can take care of this myself. I can make sure that I'm doing all of this stuff. But here's the issue. We can't do that until we first have recognized that at one point we were the traveler. And we needed the Samaritan to come and get us out of the ditch and take us to an inn. And heal us. And care for us. Love us intimately, selflessly, and generously. You see, it's when, it's when we recognize, when we recognize that that's who we are, that we're the traveler, that then we are empowered and equipped by the power of the gospel in us, that then we can turn and go, just as we've been called to do, turn and go to people who are different, who are distinct, but are people who need to hear the gospel and need to know the hope that they have in light of Christ, that need to know that there are answers in this life that sometimes is so difficult to deal with. You see, I don't think it's about us living up to some standard, but living out of what has been done for us. You and I, brothers and sisters, were travelers who were beaten, who were lost, who had no hope, who were desperate. But our great Savior stepped in. He got in the midst of our mess. He did for us what no one else could do. See, we strive now to emulate what the Good Samaritan did, not to save ourselves, but because we ourselves have been saved. Because that's who we are. We do it not to earn our place at the table, but because the place has been given to us, because there is a place 
for us. So brothers and sisters, as, as you hear Jesus' last words, go and do likewise, don't hear them as a command to go in and find your place at the table. Find it, hear it as an encouragement to go and let others know there's a place at the table. That there's a place in His presence, that there's a place in His kingdom, that there's hope, that there's life, that there's something tangible and good and beneficial in Him. Don't do it to, to earn His love. Do it because you're a steward of His love. Not to prove justice, but to provide the grace and mercy that you have been freely given. Let's pray.